Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and results in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. Thank you, Tammy. Good morning, church. At this time, our kiddos, grades three and under, will be dismissed in the back of the room. If you'd like them to go to their class down the hall, Miss Ashley's in the back of the room in the Blue Redeemer Kids shirt. Uh, you can meet her there. They can't wait to read God's Word together. Well, we're glad you're here this morning, this first weekend of spring break here in our community. Um, it's good to be back with you. I uh, appreciate Charles stepping up last week in Genesis 10. I told him I owed him a steak dinner for handling the genealogy there and the, the dispersing of the nations and the peoples. Um, but it's good to be back with you this morning. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you, turn with me to Genesis chapter 11 is where we're going to be today. Uh, Genesis chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 1, we'll read down through verse 9 together. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read together, and you can follow along there. Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, reads, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do uh, will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is God's Word. Back in 2017, I had the opportunity to travel for the first time uh, to a province of South Africa called KwaZulu-Natal. Uh, it's the area where we've gone back now for a number of years doing some work with churches there in that community in an area where we are going to be taking a team from Redeemer here at the end of this year. Uh, so if you're interested in going with us, uh, we, we had an interest meeting a while back, uh, but the, 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 the kind of deadline for registration will be probably sometime in May. And so I just want to put that on your radar once again, if those of you who are interested in participating in that trip with us. But my first trip to South Africa, uh, I was amazed uh, by the sights and sounds that I saw there. And one of the things that I heard there were multiple languages being spoken. Uh, in the particular area in which we worked, there were three dominant languages, English, uh, then Afrikaans, which is a derivative of Dutch, okay? 
Uh, and then there was the Zulu language that was spoken. Uh, Afrikaans is kind of is, is a strange language to me uh, because I, have, I'm, I didn't grow up in a Germanic setting with Dutch heritage. And so they speak that to one another. They go back and forth between English and Afrikaans. The Zulu folks go back and forth between the English they've learned in school and the Zulu they learned in their home. Zulu language sounds very strange to my ears uh, because there's a lot of pops and clicks they make with their tongues for certain ways they pronounce things. And it's really quite a beautiful language whenever you listen to it spoken. Uh, but in, 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 as, you, as you travel across the globe, you're going to find that there are languages and dialects that have emerged across the whole face of the earth in different people groups. In fact, you'll find as USA Today, a USA Today article that was published back in 2022 reported that there are 7,151 living languages on the face of the earth today. They said 23 of those languages account for nearly half of the world's population speaking patterns. So there's the dominant languages spoken, but there's over 7,000 languages that are alive and well on the face of the earth. And whenever you look at how is it that humanity who descended from a common ancestor, right, ends up in a place, in a position where there's all these languages, dialects across the face of the globe, the Bible answers that question for us in Genesis chapter 11. And it's the story of Babel. Many of us who perhaps have grown up in the church or spent time in the church are familiar with this story. For those of you who haven't, this may be an interesting uh, morning for you as we take a look at this passage of Scripture together. But this story in Genesis chapter 11 is filled with all kinds of irony and satire. All right? It's intended for its original audience to almost laugh its way through the situation that it finds on the pages there. Let me give you a few examples of the satire in the story. In the story, when they, they, they propose in their hearts to build this tower that will extend into the heavens, they end up using brick and tar. They bake their own bricks and stick them together with tar rather than quarrying stone and stacking them with mortar. That was the way the Israelites built in Palestine. That was not the way the Babylonians built in Shinar. In fact, brick and tar like, that was used in this capacity was a Babylonian invention. And you see it being used throughout the Babylonian world in order to construct their towers and in order to construct their cities. And yet, as Moses writes these words to an Israelite audience that had settled into the, the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who knew nothing of this brick and tar, but only built with stone and mortar, the implication was they only have brick and tar to build with while we have stone. Right? It was more lasting and stable and solid. And so, in addition, he kind of throws the Mesopotamian or Babylonian myth under the bus a little bit uh, that said, hey, these ziggurats, these, these towers, these high towers that stretch to the heavens, they were built by our gods. That's how they understood them to be. In fact, one of the ancient Babylonian uh, poems, the Enuma Elish, describes the gods molding bricks for a year to build these towers. And there's reliefs that they found that picture the gods baking the bricks and stacking the bricks and passing the bricks up ladders and using the tar to spread them along. And here Moses is saying, no, the gods didn't build these things. It was these fallen men who built these things. Second of all, the fact that God has to come down to look at this mighty tower that stretches into the heavens. Right? 
So God, in no way is God nearsighted like I am, okay? If I didn't have contacts in or glasses on my face, I couldn't see any further than right here. I'm almost legally blind, okay? But I am incredibly nearsighted and have been all of my adult life, right? From the time that I was in third grade. Uh, But Yahweh doesn't have that problem. He's not nearsighted. He doesn't need contacts. He doesn't need glasses. So that's not what's going on here. That's not why he has to come down to see it. But the reality is that God is, has to come down to see this because no matter how high men may exalt themselves and build, God is always infinitely higher. Right? The psalmist says in Psalm chapter 2, verse 4, He who sits in heaven, the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. See, so much of men's aspirations in their hearts, no matter high, how, how high they build, God always has to come down. Because what we are building is so tiny. It's, just, it's as if God has to get down on His hands and knees and inspect what's going on to see it. It's like us looking down on an ant who's moving down along the ground because God is so lofty and so high and so exalted. In addition, you have a play on words in the Hebrew original language in verse 9. In verse 9, we're told that place would become called came to be known as Babel because God there scattered the peoples. That word Babel in the original language means gate of God. Okay, And that's what the people were trying to do. Access heaven. Exalt themselves. Become equal with God. It was, no, it was seen as a place where uh, men could access the heavens. But rather than that being what it goes down in history as in the Scriptures, Right, the word Bilal, which is he confused, right? You see that Babel and Bilal are right next to each other in the Hebrew. So if you're a Hebrew Israelite reading this, you see that place came to be known as Babel because it was there the Lord Bilaled the people, confused their languages, and scattered them to the, across the face of the earth. And so what was meant to be a place to access heaven becomes a place of confusion. What was intended to be a place of significance and achievement becomes a place of confusion. You see, all man-made religion in the end, it results in confusion. All of men's attempts to exalt itself to the place or above God results in confusion. Look at our culture today, uh, throughout our society. All the gender fluidity conversations create a great deal of confusion as as societies have cast off the restraints of God and and sought to rule themselves. So confusion abounds in the hearts and minds of boys and girls, men and women. Confusion always rules whenever God is set aside. So there's all kinds of irony and satire that fills this story. And so this morning, what I want us to do is take a look at the story together. And there's, there, listen, there are about seven different angles that we could go, go at in this story, but I'm going to pick one to take a look at this morning. But I want to re, just briefly fly over the story and then give one thing this morning that I think that we ought to take away from this. So in the story, in verses 1 and 2, uh, we're told that post-flood peoples all spoke the same languages, used the same words, and as they migrated east, they're continuing to move east of Eden. Right, they find some flat ground in a place called Shinar, and they end up settling there. Now, the land of Shinar would later come to be known as Babylonia. Okay, and in Genesis chapter 10, verse 10, we're told that the great empire builder and kind of tyrant Nimrod, he founded his kingdom there in the land of Shinar, and from there pushed north into Assyria. 
And as biblical history unfolds, Shinar, this place where they settled, becomes a major center for the development of a culture and civilization that would be built on counterfeit religion, on the development, uh, rebelliousness against the true God and His revealed Word, the cradle of imperial tyranny, and the enemy of God's people. In short, it would be synonymous with or the epitome of wickedness. If, if you track and trace the mentions of Babylon throughout the Bible, that's what you're going to find. In fact, they, the, and the fact that they settled there, listen, is in direct opposition to what God had told them in chapter 9, verse 1, to fill the earth. Whenever they come off the boat, God says to Noah and to Shem and to Ham and to Japheth there, He says, fill the earth. Twice He tells them that in Genesis 9, repeating what He had told our first parents back in Genesis chapter 2. Fill the earth. Fill the earth, and yet they want to settle in one location. In fact, God would reverse that, we'll see later on in verse 8. Now as you move forward in the story, in verses 3 and 4, we see that what these post-flood people do whenever they settle in Shinar is seek to construct a city and build a tower that would stretch into the heavens. Now this skyscraper that they attempt to build here is a symbol of humanity's united self-assertion against God. Who, who, who would, again, command them to fill the earth. They are proud sinners. They're kind of like Cain. Okay, back in Genesis chapter 4, where they fear a loss of both place, right, and kind of an existential meaning of being rooted somewhere, but they also it live, they fear being living in isolation from one another. And so like Cain, they find their solution for meaning in, a, in this a city that would rival God in building a city. And see, humanity all aims to live in the heavens where only the Lord dwells in this tower and man's seeking to elevate himself to the place of God. Notice as well, they do this because they desire a name for themselves. Now, a name signifies reputation or fame or progeny. Right? It's an attempt at essentially immortality that they would go down in history for their achievements. And so they bake bricks and they take tar, and they build a city and a tower. See, once again, human technology and ingenuity is used to exalt humanity to the place of God. You see that as a theme throughout the book of Genesis. You get to verses 5-7, to seven, and God comes down to survey the situation. He comes to take a look. Now, once again, you notice God has to come down to see what He's doing. Or what these builders are doing. The, the builders think their temple reaches into heaven, but it's still so low that God has to descend to see it. And li- he says, literally, all they plan to do will not be withheld from them. Now, what God is, when we read that at, at, at kind of face level, we, uh, first glance, we think, well, God feels threatened, right? He's this insecure deity up in heaven, right? And so he's threatened by the people's ingenuity. But that's not what's going on here. God's not threatened by what humanity is doing, by their potential. He's not up there wringing his hands going, oh, no, I don't know what they're going to do next, right? I, we better do something about this, guys, right? That's not what's going on. But rather, God recognizes what would happen to humanity if the human condition was left unchecked. They would build up 
a delusion of self-sufficiency through false religion, corporate security, and political uniformity. They would throw off God and attempt to rule the universe themselves. And their, in their delusion, they would never turn to God. Their Babylonian hearts would become impenetrable as stone. As hard as the bricks they were baking. And so in verses 8 and 9, God disperses them from there over the face of all the earth. And He confuses their languages. See, Babel, as we said earlier, meant gate of God. But there at the gate of God is where God confuses their languages and scatters them across into all the lands. See, and in the Bible, this particular location, this city, the Babel or Babylon, would increasingly come to symbolize godless society with its pretensions, like in Genesis 11, its persecutions, like in Daniel chapter 3, its pleasures, sins, and superstitions, like in Isaiah uh, chapter 47, its riches and eventual doom in Revelation 17 and 18. See, this glory that it had built, its ziggurat, this famous temple, tower that it had constructed that reached into the heavens, but whenever you read in, in Revelation chapter 18, it's not the tower that has reached into the heavens, but it's her sins that have reached into the heavens. In Revelation 18.5. So here's the city. That, that's the story as it sits on the pages for us. Uh, you've got these men who refuse, this society that refuses to be scattered, doesn't want to be dispersed, doesn't want to fulfill God's mandate of filling the earth. So it settles in a place, builds a city and a tower, establishing a name for itself, a reputation, a degree of immortality, and exalting itself against God. And God recognizes, not that He's scared of what humanity will do for Himself, but for themselves, and recognizes that they, there's nothing that they will not, no extent they will not go to in order to exalt themselves against Me. So something has to be done to save them. And so He scatters them so they could not come together with their collective, essentially collective sinful potential and continue to exalt themselves against Him. Now, as I said before, there's all sorts of angles and threads that we might pull on here in this particular text, but I want to pull on one of them. When you ask the question, what is the message of Babel? Listen, there are so many, but I want to give you one this morning. So I got one point and one point only. Okay, and it's this. It's this. That one of the things that Babel teaches us is that as those made in the image of God, fallen creatures though we are, that we must learn to receive what we cannot achieve. Receive what we cannot achieve. Listen, I want to tell you something this morning, church. There is a little Babylon in each of our hearts. There's a little bit of Babylon in all of us. In verses 3 and 4, listen, we read not only about the actions of these post-flood peoples, but about their intentions. About their intentions. About why they do what they do. And we're told they're, essentially their they're pride-filled sin is threefold. First, they disobey God's divine command to fill the earth. They say, we don't want to be scattered. Two, they, in their excessive arrogance and self-confidence, they try to transgress the boundaries of heaven and earth. And then three, and where I want to land this morning, is this. All of this is done with a purpose in mind. If you see the word in verse Fourth, that 
we may make a name for ourselves. Thereby seeking their significance, their security, independent of God. See, these builders would want what rightly belongs to God and what only He can give. They want honor, they want glory, they want reputation, they want security, and they want significance. That was their problem then, and there is a little bit of that in all of us today. See, they exalt themselves to make a name, a reputation. They want to be people who are renowned. The only other place this idea of name has shown up so far in the book of Genesis is back in Genesis chapter 6, whenever we read about the Nephilim, who were the mighty men of old or of renown, and we see that the earth was filled with violence because of them. Uh, that's the only place that we see this type, this concept of name show up so far. And so here, they're not saying we want to make a good reputation as good God-fearing, right? Bible-reading, Jesus-loving people. But we want to make a name for ourselves over and against God. That's what was in them, and that is what is in us. C.S. Lewis recognized it as well. In his story, Prince Caspian, one of the uh, stories in the Chronicles of Narnia, the end of the story in both the book and in the movie that was produced based off of the book, there is a scene that's captured between Aslan, this great lion king, and Reepicheep, this little valiant warrior mouse, right, who loves his sword and loves his tail. But there was a battle that took place in the story of Prince Caspian between the Talmarines and the Narnians. And in that battle, Reepicheep, he loses his tail. It is sliced off. And following the battle, he asked Aslan to replace his tail. And Reepicheep says this. He says, I regret that I must withdraw. And so he moves back from Aslan and he says, uh, for a tail is the honor and glory of a mouse. And Aslan responds, he says, I wonder if you do not think too much about your own honor. And I believe that's the condition that all of us find ourselves in. In fact, you see it across the pages of Scripture. You see it in the pages of history. And you see it in our lives as well. From the very beginning of the story in the Bible, our first parents sought to rob glory from God as they sought to be like Him. We saw that several months ago. In Genesis chapter 3, you see it on the pages of history, Herostratus was a Greek arsonist in the 4th century B.C. And he sought notoriety for himself. He wanted to go down in history. And so much so right, that he would burn down one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And his acts then prompted the creation of a law forbidding anyone to mention his name. And yet, his name became synonymous in the ancient world for someone who committed a criminal, criminal act in order to become noted, to gain notoriety, to gain fame for themselves. You see it in our day. Not too long ago in the, the UK, a company called Rent a Crowd came online. It's a company based on the fact that you can pay them to have people follow you all around for all, all day long like you were a celebrity. This comes straight off of their website. I want to read it to you. It says, being a celebrity for a day is a fantastic fun. And the feedback that we have from our clients is that they absolutely loved it and want to use us again and again. There is nothing we cannot do for you. 
If you want to hire people to follow you around, wait for you outside of a restaurant, stop and ask you for your autograph, have pictures taken with you, enjoy the company of a bouncer and bodyguard to protect you from the paparazzi, which we have also hired to follow you around. Right? You can rent a crowd and live as a celebrity for a day like you were someone who is famous. And the fact that there is an audience for this means they've tapped into something deep within the human psyche and deep within the human heart that wants fame, that wants notoriety, even if it has to pay someone else to treat them as if they were something that they are not actually. Look at YouTube. Their slogan is what? Broadcast yourself. Right? You've got social media that with all of its likes and loves and retweets. In fact, there was an agency called Clout.com that, that allows content creators to subscribe in order to monetize their following. And Clout.com, if you subscribe to their service, it measures your online footprint every day and you begin each day with a score of how significant you are online. People crave significance. They crave rootedness. They crave a name. And all of us, listen, those might be some really humorous examples. But listen, we cannot laugh off the fact that all of us have a little bit of that Babylon in our own hearts. We're all trying to make a name for ourselves through our achievements, through what we're able to do. Listen, I felt it last Sunday. <laughs> I did. I was, I was, I was, the reason I was gone last Sunday, I, I had trained for four months to run a marathon. Right, it's the first full marathon. I've done a lot of half marathons. First full marathon. So I'd trained, and I'd registered. I'd paid money to go be tortured that way, Right? And so I get to the starting line, and the gun goes off, and me and Chase Randolph, one of our church members here, we were running together. Three and a half miles in, I felt like somebody shot me in my calf with a pellet gun, and I knew exactly what had happened because I felt this feeling before. Um, I tend to feel it more often the older that I get. It's a torn muscle. And so three and a half miles in, I tore my right calf muscle. And so over the course of the next 23 miles, right, through varying degrees of pain as I sought to finish the race, because I'd already opened the, 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 the finisher race packet, right? right? They gave it to you the night before when you pick up your race packet and there's a finisher shirt in it. And I'd already opened the shirt, right? And so I thought, if I'm going to wear this shirt with any kind of integrity, I've got to finish the race. <laughs> I may have to crawl across that finish line, but I'm going to wear that shirt, right? And so... But when it first happened, the thoughts that began to flash through my mind. Listen, some of you were like, I don't know, I want to come back to this church if you actually shared with you some of the things I was thinking as I, when it first happened, because I was thinking, what is everybody going to think of me? Right? Here I was, I was in the best cardiovascular shape that I had been in since my 20s. In my 40s now. And, I, and I, I had goals that I had shared with people when they, when they asked me, hey, what are you aiming for? And I told them what I was aiming for. What are people going to think of me? Like my reputation will be, <sighs> take a hit. 
I felt those types of feelings. Why? Because there was something inside of me that said, hey, you can make a name for yourself and the, what, by what you achieve over the course of this 26.2 miles. Some of you are thinking, you're so petty. I am. But listen, so are you. So are you. You feel those kinds of things too. And we're on this constant treadmill Essentially, to achieve and 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 to to make a name for ourselves. And one of the things that the story of Babel teaches us is that all the things that we are doing to achieve for a a name for ourselves, that we must set aside. And in humility... Not not in self-exaltation, like these post-flood peoples exalting themselves, but in humility be willing to receive what we cannot achieve. Because we cannot achieve a lasting name for ourselves. We cannot achieve lasting significance for ourselves. Back at Thanksgiving, I was down visiting my family in South Louisiana and during that time, I, I went over to the track there to get a track workout for this marathon that I was going to be competing in. Um, and when I did, I walked into my old high school stadium. Okay, and there on the, on the boards were all of the records that had been set right over the court, like for track and field. Okay, and as I looked at some of those records there, I noticed some of the records that were set back whenever I was a student there still stood, but many of the records had fallen year after year after year after year as people got better, faster, stronger. And so their name, the names that used to hold those spots were no longer there, right? And so the significance they once held, they no longer held. Because the, anything that we do to try to achieve significance for ourselves will ultimately be replaced by someone who comes after us. So we cannot achieve a name for ourselves that's lasting with the kind of significance that we desire. You can only receive that. You can only receive that. So you and I can either live for an identity or we can live from an identity. In fact, there's only two ways of understanding who you are. It's either identity, significance achieved, or identity and significance received. And so for our, those close flood peoples there at Babel, it was not enough for them to receive an identity, receive significance as those who had been made in the image of their Creator. But rather, they wanted to use creation to exalt themselves into the place of their creator and make a name for themselves. And so we seek to do the same. See, many of us have lived our lives as a series of proofs. Trying to create and generate significance for ourselves. We sought to prove how smart we are through our academics. We sought to prove how sophisticated we are through, through... our, uh, our, 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 how, how cultured we are. We sought to prove how simple and satisfied we are. I don't need all that culture. I'm just a simple, low-class redneck. <laughs> right? How assertive or attractive we are. 
right? I'm the kind of person who takes charge and command whenever I come into the room and I turn heads and people listen to me. How independent and self-made we are. I don't depend on anyone else. I'm a self-made person. How wealthy and how wise we are. People seek out my counsel and my opinions. And don't you see the car that I drove to church this morning? How powerful and prestigious we are. Now, some of us are thinking right now, look, I'm not living with anything to prove. But so often, we're living in such a way as to prove to everyone else around us that we have nothing to prove. And so you are trying to prove something that you have nothing to prove. Because we live life as a series of proofs. And listen, if you're living to achieve an identity, achieve significance, then your work is never done. It's never done. And you're always in fear that someone will supplant you. On the other hand, on the other hand, if you understand yourself as one who's been made in the image of God, and you understand yourself as one who is so loved by your Creator that He would send His Son for you in your sin to be your Savior. If you understand that, and if you understand what John says in John chapter 1, verse 12, for as many as believed upon Him, He gave right to become what? Children of God. Because they received something that they did not achieve. It was achieved for them by someone else. And all they had to do was believe upon this one who achieved it, namely Jesus Christ. See, one of the things that Babel teaches us is that if we want to have significance, is that we must receive what we cannot achieve. You will labor all of your life seeking to be significant or you will receive significance because you are one created in the image of God, redeemed by your Creator through the sending of His Son. As a result, you don't have to work to impress God for your significance. You don't have to work to impress others to be significant. You don't have to work to impress yourself. Because for some of us, that series of proofs over the course of our lives is us trying to prove to ourselves that we are significant. And it doesn't necessarily come from a place of pride, but it comes from a place of shame, of feeling like I am not enough. We must receive what we cannot achieve. The only way to do that by faith. Now listen, I want to end this message this way by telling you that the story of Babel doesn't end here. See, the reality of Babel's long influence in history is also the source of a phenomenal hope for us as Christians. See, a final reversal of what took place at Babel was promised by the prophet Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, he writes, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. 
See, Zephaniah answers the effects of Babel. And then you have Jesus comes onto the scene and through His death and resurrection at Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit, when each one was hearing in his own language what the, what, what, what the apostles were speaking. You have a reversal of Babel and a sign of the last days when all will call upon the name of the Lord. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts chapter 2. So the hopelessness of Babel was not God's last word. Because the day is coming when sin will be destroyed and the perfect unity will be restored among the nations. See, in the book of Revelation, as we said earlier, the holy city, which is the antithesis to Babylon, is seen as coming down out of heaven from God. Right? The, the holy city isn't a place where we build our way to the heavens, but the holy city is coming down from heaven with its gates open to unite the nations, not divide them and scatter them. We read in Revelation 21, and He carried me away in the Spirit, to John speaking, to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. That's what's coming down out of heaven. The antithesis to Babel. So then, and today, the message is the same. We must leave Babel with its proud dreams and God-defying ways if there's to be any hope for us. We must abandon the Babylonian hearts and our search for significance and security in the city of man. See, our hearts, our Babylonian hearts may blend and meld political philosophy, economic theory, technology, and psychology, and religion into a mighty self-elevating tower. But it will never have the effect of significance and security that we long for. We will never be able to scale our way into heaven. But the good news is the heavens come down to earth. So we leave off chasing after a name for ourselves and find our identity in Christ in Christ alone. As the author of Hebrews says, we're waiting. We're not building, this is building a city here that's going to have foundations that last forever, but we're waiting for another city whose builder and architect is God Himself. That's what we're waiting for, church. And it's coming down out of heaven one day. And our significance, listen, it will not pass. If it's in in, rooted in God and God alone, it will not pass away in this life. The name will never be replaced upon that plaque because it's written in the Lamb's book of life. And it will endure forever. So let me pray for us this morning that we would receive what we cannot achieve. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the truth of Your Word for the way we can see so clearly that what we are searching for is not a church. It is not limited to our society, to our generation, to our culture. But Father, it has been the search and quest of the human heart, both pre-flood and post-flood and through all generations of history, even our own. 
Father, we continue to search for significance. We continue to search for identity. We continue to search for security and rootedness. It's all a quest for immortality. But Father, help us to see that as finite beings, we will never have the kind of security and significance we long for in this life as long as we continue to try to achieve it. Because we will always be supplanted by someone or something else. Every culture has been. Every nation has been. And so, Father, may we not live with a false sense of security in this nation, believing that it will not be supplanted one day by another should you tarry in your return. And help us not live with a false sense of security and significance based upon the things that we're able to achieve for ourselves. Help us to abandon our quest to achieve significance and receive receive the work of your Son for us. Place our faith and confidence in Him, in Him alone. And find that that ache of our hearts satisfied. Father, I pray if there be someone here today who's never found their significance in Christ, being made in, as a, a, a man or a woman in your image, being redeemed by the blood of your Son. I pray today would be the day they lay down their search for significance and find it in you. And for those of us who have, Father, I pray that our hearts that are prone to wander, that you would turn them back today so that we would stop causing destruction in our lives by our quest for achievement. So we offer all this to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church, but tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.